0: This is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Good afternoon. Thanks for your company. My name is Callie Buchanan. This afternoon on the Queensland Country Hour, have you looked into how much carbon is stored on your farm? Have you got a quote? Worked out how much it might cost to do the numbers on carbon? It can be pretty costly. There's obviously some financial benefit to be had, but how do you do that cost opportunity calculation if you can't get out the gate on how much soil you've got how much soil carbon you've got to begin with? We'll take a look at that issue before one o'clock today. And are there more shearers around this year? We'll answer that question before half past twelve. Of course, you will get the latest from the Weather Bureau as well about what you can expect from the rest of your week across Queensland. But first today, last week, the national fight against the deadly bee parasite varroa mite shifted from trying to eradicate it from Australia's shores to learning to live with it. Queensland's apiarists are still working through what that will mean for them. But for someone like Mara Rogers, the impact of the decision was immediate. Her hives were just hours away from being destroyed when word came that those in the red zones would no longer be subject to mandatory euthanasia.
2: Relief, tears of joy basically because people then have an option to keep their bees. Um, We've also now been given the option whether we want to go ahead with euthanasia. If people have Pharoah mite in their hives they have that option I think they've given the beekeepers a sense of ownership of the situation and I think that's what really it boils down to. We couldn't eradicate it. It was impossible to eradicate. And whereas we're grateful, you know, there's not one single beekeeper I've spoken to who has denounced the DPI or the Commonwealth for trying to eradicate. But the frustration was... When the realization that it cannot be eradicated and they kept throwing all these you know uh, situa- you know situations where you just have to eradicate, 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 when the 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 fact is it was never able to be one hundred percent controlled overseas, we needed to take that from the overseas people to learn from it. There was no management plan you know, uh, devised. It's like where they're, they're devising these plans
3: on the run. So you feel like there should have been much more planning put in place and a movement to management should have come much sooner?
2: Yes, exactly. I think it would have been so much uh, less stressful for a lot of beekeepers. We've now got so many families whose lives are directly impacted financially and emotionally through the loss of their bees i don't rely on my bees for my income you know it's it's purely for pleasure what about those people they needed that management plan beforehand and it wasn't there the option wasn't there for them you know and that's the heartbreaking situation i had tears of joy that my girls could be you know my bees could be saved those people weren't given that option and so it's 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 a sense of joy on one respect and then the reality sits, you know, you think about those families and those emotions come back again and you just feel really badly for them.
3: I hear the decision to move to management really came, like, at the 11th hour for you. Yeah, 11th
2: hour. I was called at 2.44pm on Wednesday uh, to say that um, the national management group had... uh, Said that all mandatory eradication is to be stopped, with immediate effect, my bees were literally supposed to be euthanized on Wednesday night. So it was a matter of hours. A Matter of hours. Yeah. So yeah, it was. It's. It was really quite shocking.
3: You, you must have felt incredibly elated.
2: Well, I was um, tears of joy, quite literally, and even now. Um, but you can see the emotion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it is. It's um. You know, it's, you look at them and you see what they do, the, the little bees, you know, how incredibly important they are. And it's just a sense of joy that again, I'm now faced with the reality of, you know, my, my hives do have a lower varoma count. How many hives do you have? I have seven hives, um, which would probably end up being 14 by the end of this season. So yeah, I, I'm faced with quite a situation. As to how to move forward with my apiary,
3: yeah. must be great to at least have that decision in in your hands.
2: Exactly, and this is this is I think has been one of the underlying elements with the beekeepers is that all that was taken out of their hands. They they just kept being told time and time again, this is what has to happen: eradication at all costs. When it wasn't that the wasn't happening it's impossible to fully eradicate this mine and because of the loss of ownership in decision making with the beekeepers I think a lot of that followed through with their frustration and anger into how this was being managed in the first place. Do you produce honey
3: or do you are you more so in the pollination side? I, har-
2: I harvest my own honey for myself and my neighbours and my friends. Um, it's purely because I wanted to do beekeeping. You know, yes, I wanted to get into it for the honey. Once you start beekeeping and you see what the bees do and how crucial they are to pollinating, even my veggies, Um you have a lot more respect. It becomes... It not. It, it doesn't become about the honey anymore. It becomes about looking after those little insects because they are so crucial to our existence. And that's why I got into it, basically.
1: <laughs> Mara Rogers, an amateur beekeeper from Kempsey in New South Wales, speaking to Tina Quinn. And while her hives were saved with just hours to go... The Costa family was not so fortunate. Danielle Bannum says for many beekeeping families the decision to move to management over eradication was too late. Hers saved for her it saved some hives but hundreds had already been destroyed. She says there will be going ongoing impact for both her family and the industry.
4: Huge toll on our finances in the time that we take to rebuild the hives and it's really also affecting people's health and their mental health as well. Because how many, you had already had to euthanise quite a number of your hives before this decision was made. How many hives did you lose? Uh, So in total, we had uh, 480 uh, destroyed on the almond farm at Griffith two weeks before the decision to go to management. And then just last week, um, they destroyed our kids' four hives at the shed, and that was really heartbreaking. Um, They're the hives that Daniel, my partner, uses to teach the kids beekeeping and yeah, that was, that kind of tipped us over the edge a bit to see their little hives destroyed. Yeah. Do the kids know? No, so we haven't told the kids and um, that we, their hives have been destroyed. Yeah, we just don't have the heart to tell them. Um, we'll try and rebuild them hives and replace them with different ones at the shed so that they don't know any different because, yeah, it's too hard. So you, you have been left with some hives to work with? Uh, yep so we've got 280 hives we managed to spare from euthanasia. Um, we haven't been able to tend to them for the last month almost five weeks so they are a bit, um, bit of a mess as such. They need a bit of care put back into them to get them to standard for spring um, so Daniel was checking them out yesterday. There'd been growing calls for quite some
3: time for the national management strategy to change to management and and not eradication. You lost so much. Do do you feel frustrated that the decision
4: wasn't made sooner? Uh, Absolutely. We feel that um, once the spread of the mite um, was found in the almond Orchards in different locations across New South Wales, that the DPI wouldn't have the resources to be able to keep up with the eradication we feel at that time they should have paused and reassessed the situation and stopped eradicating hives um, and just reassessed and took a breath as such. And that would have prevented a lot of hives needlessly being destroyed. Um, We feel all the hives destroyed in the past month have just, it's just been in vain. Like our 480 hives for us, that's two thirds of our business. And to not not be compensated fairly for that that income that's now lost um, because it's going to take quite a while to rebuild them hives. And, yeah, the biggest thing moving forward for us is we will be pursuing legal action for loss of income for them 480 hives that were destroyed. We're looking forward to uh, a really good season locally here with the ironbark, probably the best in about seven years. And to have that taken from us with no compensation, that just feels really, really wrong. In terms of the mental health aspect, many of your fellow beekeepers in the industry have been suffering like yourself and and, and Daniel. This has been, I can't stress how much this has been very taxing on people's mental health. Um, Beekeepers have been supporting each other by checking in daily with phone calls and stuff. Um, But we, we feel that if this decision didn't go to management from eradication, that there would have been people that um, could have been looking at suiciding um, because of the toll it's been having on their families and their finances, uh, their mental health. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk and worry in amongst beekeepers in the industry on on Facebook pages and stuff that they're really worried about their mates suiciding. The trauma's going to remain for a long time, it sounds. Yeah, this is going to take a long time for... um, a lot of beekeeping families to get over the mental trauma will be lasting long lasting for, for quite a long period. I can only speak from personal experience what's going on in my house. Um it's it's been a very taxing time. Um we've both been experiencing a lot of anxiety, stress, um mental health issues, it's It's been extremely difficult to to deal with this while having two young kids and trying to shelter them from what's happening to our lives, yeah.
1: Danielle Bannum from Costa Honey at Kempsey in New South Wales and our thanks to Tina Quinn for those stories. Uh, If you have any questions about getting ready for varroa, what it might mean for you as someone with a beehive, then you can always get in touch with the Queensland Department of Agriculture. And if you're doing those alcohol washes, make sure you report them through the B 123 app or touch base with the Queensland Beekeepers Association. And as always, if anyone you know or even yourself just needs someone to talk to dealing with this issue or any of the other challenges that being in rural Queensland can throw at you, you can always contact Lifeline on 13 11 14.
0: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: In a moment, we'll be talking about soil carbon. Have you done the maths? Have you had a quote on what it might take to work out just how much is stored on your farm? I'd like to hear your experience. If you've had a look at how much carbon you're capturing... What that process was like? Was it expensive? Would you have preferred it to have been done a different way? Send me a text on 0487 993 Have you had a look at how much carbon is stored on your farm? 0487 993 the number to send a text message to the Queensland Country Hour at just about any time. Uh, After the weather, we're going to take a look at what some of the moisture around. I know it doesn't feel like there's a lot, but... There's been a little bit and it's impacted some of our Queensland industries and we're going to head overseas to meet a cattle producer who might be able to provide some insight into what markets are doing elsewhere in the world before we head off to the markets ourselves. But not too long ago, you probably were hearing quite a bit about a shortage of shearers in Australia. Now, there's some nervousness creeping into the industry as those drier conditions and weak livestock markets might reduce demand for shearers. Farmers are reporting it's been a lot easier to source them this season after last season's headaches when that chronic shortage was fuelled by wet weather delays. Jason Litchford from the Shearing Contractors Association says some shearers have been underemployed so far this season.
5: It's a different story to the last uh, two or three years, since you know we, we went, went into lockdown with COVID, and we also came out of the drought at the same time. It's a very different story, and and what I mean by that is that there is uh, there's less pressure in the market. Um, we've seen a winter where contractors across the country have certainly had the chance to catch up. If anything, mm-hmm. in some of the some of the districts where there's a lot more shearers, you know, we've certainly had workers that have been underemployed there's certainly work going on every week but they're not necessarily getting uh, you know thirty eight hours a week every week so that's sort of the background to get to here uh, and now as you said we we're just coming into the the busiest time it's certainly a much more controlled and organized situation where there is workers available there's no panic in the market at the moment uh, and if anything you know the grapevines looking at the concept that you know um, shearing prices have peaked for a while uh and you know the rumors are going around that our shear is going to start sort of um discounting their price to to get work if work becomes less available than it was in the last two or three years
6: so that's a pretty dramatic turnaround from if we were having this conversation 12 months ago
5: absolutely you know and we we haven't gone from one extreme to the other but we've certainly gone from probably you know the the worst extreme that we've seen it in a generation or two we're all thankful you know that that's behind us um, and we we're certainly back at more normal times and if anything everyone's a little bit more nervous that you know with drier conditions with you know the the Bureau of meteorology forecasting uh, you know El nino conditions um, that that certainly Putting a nervousness into the market, and then we've also seen the, the, the issue with uh, you know meat prices or lamb prices that they're falling, and a lot of the feedlots are uh, not stocking up with um with lambs this year.
6: So nervousness in that uh, shearers or contractors feel like there, there mightn't be enough work to keep them fully employed.
5: Yeah that's that yes that that's exactly what I'm referring to that that's the you know one of our big enemies for keeping people in this industry is is continuity of work and we've worked you know tirelessly with with growers to try and have some sort of uh better communication systems so people in district know when everyone's shearing and if growers can be flexible and fit in with with um the workforce availability then it certainly uh you know keeps that continuity of income coming in and and keeps people in the industry so that that's that's really one of our highest priorities at the moment
6: and you touched on the cost of shearing earlier on do you think it, it it has eased back a little bit or or could ease back a bit from from where it's been for the past couple of years? Probably like
5: you heard rumours, but I've actually had no evidence that that's happened. Um, There's some wishful thinking in there. There's a couple of challenges, really, because you can't actually give workers a pay cut. Otherwise, it's it's, it's actually deemed to be uh, an unfair dismissal claim, even if you haven't dismissed the workers. In other words, if you try to take away conditions or pay from workers there's laws to protect workers from employers doing that and and that's fair enough too so what we won't see is we won't be able to see workers who are working for an existing employer to actually take a pay cut if that worker moved to a different employer and came to a different arrangement in terms of what they work for sure that's legal and that's fine so what what it might drive is a little bit more um tenure or loyalty in the market which you know from a shearing contractor's perspective that's always been uh, a challenge for for uh, contractors to keep workers in a district or in your own team rather than looking at Facebook and seeing you know the last two or three years um you know a little pay increase here or there to leave the district um that that's something that that might work in everyone's favor to keep workers there but there's certainly not going to be any um, easy or often pay cuts on the on the horizon.
6: Jason, there have been, I suppose, in the past couple of years, crisis discussions about where where to recruit or how to train more shearers and wool handlers. Has that problem solved itself now, or or is there still that need?
5: It's a great question. We since twenty nineteen, I, I can say in in the, the data I track is for Victoria and South Australia because we have an affiliation with a. Our registered training organisation down there, we've seen nearly, it's about 460 uh, people who currently still engage or went through our shearing schools and, and were engaged into the shearing industry as workers. So in other words, they, they they entered the industry. That loops us back to this thing where we're looking for continuity of work. Um, workers who you know shear less sheep than a more experienced shearer, well, they're the ones we don't want seeing sitting on the bench and not having work. Um, because that, that will just, tr- you know, may in some cases trigger them to leave the industry. So, again, that, that comes back to that continuity of work thing. And that's, you know, h- hence me describing the nervousness if we lose sheep numbers or, or other factors that creep in to to stop that continuity of work. Then, yes, it's going to be hard to sell that message to keep recruiting new workers in the industry to replace ones leaving if we don't have a good story where there is that continuity of work and, and good incomes to, to be offered.
1: Secretary of the Shearing Contractors Association of Australia, Jason Letchford, speaking with Angus Varley. In staying with the industry, wool traders and representatives from Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and South America made the trip to China over the weekend for the first Nanjing wool market conference since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Trading manager from Endeavour Wool Experts, Josh Lamb, tells Selena Green what it meant to be back at the conference
7: are incredibly valuable. One, to get back in front of customers, of course, which is always important when you're selling a product like we do, you want to be in front of customers and building those relationships. But also, you know, we have exporters there from from other countries, South Africa, New Zealand, South America, and it's great just to get around the table and, you know, share ideas and market information and see what's happening in the world.
8: Now that you've had a chance to get in there and and catch up, um, has there been any significant changes really in the way business is done or the demand or the way the market works in those four years since you've been able to get there last?
7: Probably not a lot of change in how business is actually done I mean obviously you know Chinese love to see you in person so we haven't been able to do that so we've just found other ways to sort of continue to do business and that that's sort of been fairly fairly fluid in the, in the last four years but um, changes wise there's, there's probably infrastructure changes there that, within mills. Mills are certainly looking at improving machinery or efficiencies within their businesses and and some of the bigger processes are actually expanding their capacity so they're, they're probably the major changes.
8: Were there any indications of, of on trends or if the wool market may strengthen any time soon?
7: You know what we've seen over the last sort of four or five months in the wool market is it's just a direct reflection of what's going on there as far as our customers go or customers of Australian wool and that is that they're, they're lacking confidence and we've seen that translate through to the market. You know, we've had a pretty soft market since May now and it certainly doesn't look like improving quickly but the, the biggest issue is just that lack of confidence there and that, that, that's coming from the, the economic picture in China for customers of wool's quite unclear. They co- sort of can't see where they're coming out of it in the short to medium term and of course, that flows through to the market. I mean, further out into 2024, late 2024 and into 2025, you know, they're, they're very optimistic. But just that short-term picture is not clear. And, and of course, that, that, that tends to make them a bit more conservative what they're purchasing. And, and we've seen that directly translate through to the wool market. You know, there's more than half the wool that we send to China from Australia is consumed within the country. So when the retail side or the spending side of, of the economy there is not where we'd like it to be, then, you know, it's going to directly affect the price here.
8: Where there is demand for our wool, what is it mainly in at the moment?
7: Uh, from the Merino point of view, it's it's mainly in that sort of 19 to 22 micron range that part of the market's sort of probably performed fairly well over the last four or five months but when you get into the finer microns you know the 15 half 16 half through to 18 and a half that part of the market's quite weak and that's the sort of end of the market in China that goes into domestic retail there and that, that's clearly sluggish at the moment, and, and then that's reflected in the prices. But yeah, medium microns have been good. A bit of a highlight over the last few months has been the, the crossbred end of the markets started to improve a little bit. I mean, it's a long way off where we'd like it to be, but it, it's been a bit of a bright spot over the last probably six or seven weeks.
8: Are you expecting any major orders to come out of this conference? Um, It wasn't
7: too bad. You know, they're they're pretty good Chinese customers when you see them. You know, all the exporters from Australia were travelling there through the week and and at the conference, and they like to sort of buy something when you're sitting in front of them as a bit of a goodwill gesture. So there's definitely business around, but, you know, nothing's... You're unable to transact anything over the current market levels, of course. So probably see a, a reasonably firm or unchanged market this week and, and see what happens going forward. But yeah, look, no, nothing brilliant price-wise, but there is business being done.
8: And I it is important to keep getting in there and having those face-to-face relationships for when that confidence does return and things can bounce back?
7: Yeah, very much so. And, and, and this conference was an opportunity for a lot of exporters from Australia to, to go back to China for the first time since 2019, and, and now that you we've know, sort of we've broken the ice you know, exporters will probably travel there a bit more regularly, and and start to rebuild those relationships, so that when things do turn around, whenever that might be, we're you know we're ready to roll with them.
1: That's Trading Manager for Endeavour Wool Exports, Josh Lamb, speaking with Selina Green. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. In the next 15 minutes, have you crunched the numbers on how much carbon you have on farm? I'd love to hear from you if you have 0487 993 While there are benefits, it can be an expensive exercise. There's hope that that might get just a touch cheaper through some new technology that I'll share with you in about 15 minutes time.
9: Teenagers. I don't like myself that much. And older folks. Getting older. It stinks. They might be worlds apart, but they share the same feelings. I just don't want to be judged. Very few friends. And it's time to open their hearts. There's a little
8: voice inside me saying, go for it, baby. We are the champions.
9: We love them unconditionally. (laughs) The brand new season of Old People's Home for Teenagers. I love
2: old people. They're just so cute.
9: Starts Tuesday, October 3rd on ABC TV and streaming on
0: ABC iView. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour.
1: Let's check in with the Weather Bureau at half past 12. It's a very good afternoon to Shane Kennedy. G'day, Shane. Afternoon, Kelly. We're going to check in with some of our uh, northern sugar mills soon because there has been some moisture around, even if it hasn't been particularly widespread, is my understanding.
10: Yeah, it's been surprisingly wet over the past uh, few days up around the North Tropical Coast, so it's pretty much any part of the state that's been bucking the dry trend in September, so quite a few places uh, above average uh, rainfall for September there, where everywhere else is is very much below average, and we did see a few places getting uh, 30 to even up to 60 millimetres in the past 24 hours, so just around Tully, uh, the the highest there, and still showery at the moment. We've seen a further uh, 10 to 15 millimetres in a couple of places since 9 this morning, so Likely to still be pretty wet there for the next 24 hours or so, but a bit of an easing trend starting uh, around uh, late Tuesday into Wednesday there, Kelly. And even though we may still see a few light showers there uh, for the rest of the week, it should be uh, much lighter than they've seen over the past uh, couple of days.
1: And what about for the rest of the state? Any sign of moisture for other regions?
10: A lot of mostly sunny conditions for inland Queensland, so continuing that trend over the last few days. So we do have quite a lot of thunderstorm activity uh, just in the very far southwest, so west of uh, Thargaminda yesterday. So we may see another round of some thunderstorms uh, just near the New South Wales border there today, but not expecting too much in the way of rainfall uh, today and then calming down tomorrow. And Elsewhere, we still have some light uh, showers along the east coast, uh, mainly contracting north of the Sunshine Coast today, so just a little bit around uh, Gladstone, Yapoon and the Mackay area so far today. Expecting we'll, we'll still see that persist off and on for the next couple of days, so primarily around the North Tropical Coast, but we may see it extending a bit further uh, east at times. And, and the only other weather of note expected over the next few days, Kelly, is uh, we'll see the next trough move into southern Queensland on Wednesday at this stage. So not expecting to bring much rainfall, but it could bring uh, a few more thunderstorms, uh, mainly between uh, or around Fygaminder and Charleville, on Wednesday and potentially just around uh, parts of the New South Wales border ranges uh, just in main of the Gold Coast on that Wednesday. And then on Thursday, those showers and thunderstorms could contract a bit more to the southeast, So most likely be uh, east of Toowoomba and uh, south of Gympie at this stage on the Thursday. It's not looking to be too substantial in terms of rainfall on that Thursday, but we could see a few places getting 5 to 10 millimetres also.
1: And where are we sitting in terms of temperatures as we lead into that change on Wednesday?
10: So it's a little bit of a mixed bag overall, Kelly. So it's fairly close to average for most of eastern and northern Queensland, and that trend will continue for the next day or two, though remaining quite warm in the far west. Uh, so around Birdsville, for example, has been five and six degrees above average the past day or two, so that would like it to continue all week. And we'll see those warmer temperatures uh, extend across central and, and southern Queensland starting on uh, tomorrow and then persisting for much of the week. So... The most places by Wednesday and Thursday south of Ewenden are likely to be uh, three to six degrees above average and likely to be quite hot, particularly in the, the southern interior. And that heat, unfortunately, is likely to stick around at least until the weekend at this stage when it doesn't look like we'll get a, a, a cold uh, burst uh, pushing in. Even in the wake of that trough, the trough just largely just weakens and fizzles out on the Friday and then we return to the warm conditions pretty much straight away.
1: Where does that leave us in terms of fire danger ratings?
10: So those are still up in the high fire danger uh, ratings for most inland central and northern districts. So southern and eastern Queensland are sitting in moderate at this stage and should be pretty similar for the next few days. So most likely Thursday will be the peak of the fire conditions just for that trough in the area and that, the peak mm-hmm. of the heat and a bit of an increasing wind. So we may see some locally extreme uh, fire danger ratings, um, mainly in the central west and the central highlands. So should stay below the warning threshold at this stage, so no warnings expected this week, but yeah, definitely a bit of a watch point will be that Thursday this week.
1: And in terms of the coastal waters, I see there is a strong wind warning current for the peninsula coast.
10: That's right. So that's just the remnant of the strong winds. So it's mm-hmm. quite extensive across the, from Friday and over the weekend, but that's just contracted just to the peninsula at the moment, Kelly, and expect that'll persist pretty much the whole week there. So we on the weekend, but elsewhere it should be a little bit milder. So those winds are dropping. Mostly we have our southeasterlies in the 15 to 20 knot range for the majority of the east coast and the Gulf of Carpentaria, but that'll be on a slow easing trend over the next few days and then by the weekend it should be a fair bit milder across the board, so, so a better news story there.
1: Indeed. Shane Kennedy, thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour.
10: Thanks, Kelly. Have a good afternoon.
1: It's 25 to 1. In a moment, have you done the maths on soil carbon? Have you had a quote? Was it pretty expensive to work out the impact on your farm? I'd like to know. Zero four eight seven double nine three triple two is the number to get Uh, in touch, send me a text message, make sure you pop your name on there and where you're from so I can say g'day. Are you emergency ready? This summer the risk of emergency weather conditions is high and the time to prepare is now.
2: Everything you need to get ready is at abc.net.au slash emergency with checklists and resources to help keep you and your family safe before, during and after an event. And during an emergency, for important and timely local information, find your local ABC radio station. ABC radio is your emergency broadcaster.
1: Now, with the prospect of a long, hot and dry summer fast approaching, there's so far been no sign of an El Nino weather pattern for that northern coastline. It was an uns- well a bit of a surprisingly wet weekend that forced several mills to stop crushing. And around the Innisfail district, with nearly two-thirds of the crop still in the paddock, growers and contract harvesters are getting desperate for a decent dry stretch. Cane Growers Innisfail Chairman Joe Marano tells Charlie McKillop harvesters have been pulled up for 42 of the past 94 days.
11: Nothing I can do about it. If I could control the weather, I probably wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be sitting somewhere on a beach somewhere lapping it up. But unfortunately, this is what we've been dealt with and this is what we need to deal with. Um, I don't know if it's... Panic stations yet, Uh, like I said, well, there's nothing we can do about it anyway, but it's not only this year that's going to have an impact, it's next year. Unless we get a really miraculous growing season, I mean, we're probably only 30, 40% of the area planted, and we'd like to be finished by the end of September with 40% of the area planted and only 42% of the area harvested. Um, We know going past November is not good for returning, so unless we get a miraculous growing season, next year is going to have an impact as well
12: you really feel like that planting window is is closed
11: no it's not closed yet i mean there's plenty of soil moisture that's for sure um normally we stop because it gets too dry but um, this year there's plenty of soil moisture and, and people will push the envelope i mean i remember years ago after cyclones we didn't plant till november and we still cut a reasonable crop but you've got to get everything all of the ducks lined up that you get a good growing year and um yeah it's, it's it is what it is and we need to deal with it and and make every post a winner.
12: Needless to say, that you're expecting that there will be many more paddocks going to fallow.
11: I hope not, because I, I want to knock out the rubbish I got for next year, sort of thing. You know, it's oh, not yeah. if you had all if you had a good all a good all-round crop that you could go another year. But you, you, somewhere because we finished late last year, there's some rubbish there that from last year that you wanted to knock out at the end of this year. Um, you keep rethinking your strategies. Do I plan as much as I was going to? Do I Pick a date on the calendar and say no more past that. Yeah, it's all those things that go through your mind. I suppose nothing comes into play until we eventually get going. It's, it's you know, I tried planning the other day and I just bogged a plan or something shocking and um, more frustrating than anything sort of thing because you, you know what you've got to do. You know your crop that you got's not real flash, and you want to improve. You always want to improve. You want to grow a better crop from next for next year, and this comes along. And anyway, it is what it is.
12: It is what it is. It sounds like you might have to get a T-shirt printed, Joe, because there will be plenty it is of what it is. plenty of growers thinking that that will be the slogan for twenty twenty three in the South Johnston district. Um, look, um, or, yeah. or do we
11: just call it quits and go to the pub now? Well,
12: as you say, you've got to get that. You've got to get those blocks cut out. And you were talking about like giving us an insight there to the fact that it is quite a a strategy, a bit of a Tetris board. How do you pick what blocks to prioritise?
11: Well, keep nibbling away at your drier ones. And I remember years ago, a couple of years ago, it wasn't years ago, it was a couple of years ago, they said it was going to be wetter in October than September. So we went into blocks and chopped them up. And then we couldn't, you know, you use the chain once, twice, you get bogged, all the rest of it. And then we went back in October and cut it and didn't make a mark. So, you know, you'd like the weather forecast to be close to right, even though they're saying, well, they've been right this time. They're saying showers, is just the amount of the showers. I mean, some places got between two and four inches in the last couple of days. I don't think that's what was expected. I think it was 15 to 25. There's certainly some big totals and it teases you too because in between showers the sun comes out and then all of a sudden you you think blue sky to the east and looks well promising and then within an hour or two there's a big black cloud comes on and over and dumps another five ten mils on top of what's already there. So prioritising blocks you just got to deal with the dry start with the driest ones and work to the wettest ones and if you get of three or four or five, whatever it is takes to get into those wet blocks four or five weeks whatever you, you just hope you get that window before the end of the year otherwise you just leave them there
12: Kangaroos South Johnston chairman Joe Morano talking to you about the trials and tribulations of season 2023 in his particular neck of the woods uh, how's the mill been performing when has it stood yeah. up when it needed to
11: yeah, yeah, no. When it when it goes, it goes. Always after wet weather, we have a few mud problems, as you know. I mean, it'd be nice to leave it another day before the harvesters get in there. Um, but we're we're at this point now that, of course, you know, with a crop that we got, you know, it's, some of it's lying down, flat on the ground, and you're trying to pick it up. You're trying to do the best job possible. You're going to pick up a bit of mud. And those first twenty four hours, thirty six hours after the mill starts, you know, they always have trouble with mud. But after that, it starts to settle down. But apart from that, I think the mill's been performing well. Harvesters on the whole have been performing well. And, you know, I keep saying, I remember in my early days, I remember doing 14 weeks for the first half of the season and seven weeks for the second half of the season. We've been there before. We'll do it again. Uh, it is what it is. And we'll do, do whatever we can to do to get rid of this crop. I mean, at this point in time, we're probably around the 3rd of December finish, plus wet weather. We're not at Christmas yet, I believe. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's not where we want to be but it's the hand that's been dealt to us and we need to deal with it.
1: Veteran grower and harvester Joe Morano with Charlie McKillop. And there's plenty of incentive to get that crop off. The daily indicative price for the October contract today is 26.97 US cents a pound. And the... Uh, the uh, the 2023 season price is nine hundred and seventeen Australian dollars and forty cents today. So, plenty of reason to get it off if you can. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It is eighteen minutes to one.
0: You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: We're going to head to Utah. Before one o'clock to hear about one of the markets over there that uh, has been through some similar challenges to markets here in Australia, get an insight into what challenges the cattle industry in the US is facing before one o'clock. But have you looked into measuring York Farm's carbon levels? Now, it can be a costly exercise, but the federal government's National Soil Innovation Challenge aims to get the cost of sampling down to just $3 per hectare. Grape grower Ollie Madgett says the current cost is around three to five times that much, which he discovered when he tried to baseline his family's vineyard. He's now involved in an Australian-based research project to utilise remote sensing and even artificial intelligence to reduce the cost for farmers.
13: You know, carbon accounting is coming into agriculture now and will sort of increasingly uh, be so over the coming years. So initially, the farmers have done a lot of the carbon baselining of their soils. So they're understanding how much carbon is stored in their soils. The first wave has kind of primarily been doing it because they've been looking to uh, actually lodge their farms uh, with the Emissions Reduction Fund and actually kind of trade carbon credits. So that was the first wave. But now we're kind of at a point where understanding both your sources of emissions as a producer, but also the stores you have of carbon in that same land is going to be something that you're supply chain and the people that you sell your produce to so the kind of processors are going to be asking for and needing as they also have to report certainly if they're listed up the chain to their to their shareholders so that's kind of creating this second wave where people are having to do it as a part of their actual reporting and as a part of another another data point that we have to now create as farmers
8: mm, and i guess you know if there's a cost involved if there's any way to bring that back for farmers then they'll be happy to to see that so talk us through your project and and how it's aiming to do that to reduce that cost of testing
13: yeah our project we have the support of agri futures and they kind of have a carbon innovation project to help pick up any gaps in this kind of carbon space and Our work was to look at how we can reduce the density of physical sampling that you need to do. So at the moment, the reason why soil carbon quantification is expensive is in order to do it with a a proper level of confidence with your results, you actually need to take quite a significant number of samples. And those samples, when you kind of take into account the cost of getting a soil coring contractor onto your farm taking those samples down to at least 30 centimetres, sending them off to the lab for analysis. They're actually reasonably expensive per core. And that's what's made it really cost prohibitive is the number of cores you need to take. And then our project's been looking at how we can fuse together data that we get sort of remotely. So from space with these physical soil samples and how we can create a model of soil carbon that fuses these two things. So we understand you. you like actually creating ground truth samples is still absolutely paramount but how when we apply computer models can we just reduce that number of samples that's needed because that's the real driver of the cost and we've kind of taken our first steps on that journey now.
8: Right. So you, Looking at the use of the, the satellite information that you're able to get, I mean what are you able to understand about what's going on on the land from those satellite images?
13: Obviously from space you can't see past the surface, but at periods of time and in the season where we do get some reflectance from bare earth back up into space, so when we're getting some of that signal of, from the bare earth, that actually gives us an indication of what's happening right at the surface level. And then we also get other kind of proxies for what is likely to be happening underground whilst the crop is growing and as you take lots and, as you get lots and lots of data from space over time, it's that time-based data that helps you to see how crops are responding over a season, and that's, that helps you to get an indication for what's happening underground, but really you don't actually know. That's why you still have to use physical soil samples to actually take a sample down into the soil, help calibrate everything, but basically yeah, what we see from space gives us a really good indication and we now have like the next generation of satellites coming up which are doing things like very very highly and very accurately measuring the height of our soils to kind of the millimeter level so again this is something that's going to come up in the future you know as things like soil carbon levels increase so soil will typically start to expand and that's another piece of work we're doing is to also be able to use actual measurements of soil as well to be able to start to identify changes that are happening.
8: So with the work that you've done thus far, how close do you feel like you are getting to that, that cost target?
13: So I think the cost is coming down rapidly and we're actually, we've are just kicked off the second phase of our project now. So we're actually sampling with over 100 farms in South Australia over the next year and a half So we're kind of really, really starting to scale everything up. Our aims are to get that cost down into probably realistically, it will be in the next couple of years down to kind of $5 a hectare. And then the $3 a hectare target is really likely to be something that we start to hit in kind of 2026 kind of time.
1: Would that encourage you to give it a go? That's Managing Director of Perennial Australia, Ollie Madgett, speaking with Selina Green. Would a cheaper per hectare cost of sampling have you look at your farm's carbon levels? I'd be keen to hear from you. 0487 993 is the number to send me a text.
0: The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
1: Now, as we talk about managing the bee parasite varroa mite rather than trying to eradicate it, there's been plenty of discussion about what will pollinate our crops going forward. But if we don't have as many bees, could a fly be the next best pollinator? Hoverflies look Like bees a little bit, they're about the same size, but they don't sting. So they're, you know, in some cases, arguably easier to work with. Fiona Breen spoke to researcher Dr. Rayleigh Robottom, who's trialling the use of hoverflies as part of a national program led by Hort Innovation.
14: So we've been doing about seven years of research on the hoverfly, so first determining where it was in the crop, if we could rear it, and then um, if we can actually get it to a commercial level for other industries to purchase. So seven years ago there was uh, pressure
9: or there was a need for an alternative pollinator?
14: Um, Yeah, there was definitely a need for another alternative pollinator managed one um, that we can use complementary to bees.
9: How are the hoverflies going? How would you rate them as pollinators?
14: Yeah, exceptional pollinators. So much like bees uh, being exceptional pollinators themselves, uh, the flies will do uh, an equivalent job to what bees do in certain crops. So how do they do it? So they have uh, large, hairy bodies, um, in which when they're feeding off the flowers, will get pollen stuck to the hairs on their bodies, and then they'll cross different um, male-female lines and pollinate the, the flowers. Do they actually shake it off, or it's just by accident? No, it's purely by accident.
9: How did you get onto this, or how did how did the world get onto this?
14: Yeah, so we did uh, quite a few years of surveys across um, many carrot crops in the state um, to, and we found the hoverflies there and then we've taken the research from there and looking at rearing them in confinement um, and doing some trials in cages to see how well they work. So they're endemic to Tasmania? They certainly are, yeah. You'll find them. They're actually um, around the globe, uh, but you, we do find them here in Tasmania and um, mainland Australia. And they're quite nice bees, really, in terms of their interaction with people. Yeah, they're very friendly. Given their name, hoverflies, they will literally come up and just hover in front of your face. Um, But they don't bite, they don't sting, and they're they're not a pest to livestock. And
9: they eat nice things.
14: (laughs) They they do, they do. They consume nectar and, and pollen off the flowers. Do you think people get them mixed up with bees? They look a little similar? They do. They look very similar. In fact, most people um, have seen pictures and thought instantly that it was a bee, just purely because of the stripes they have on their body and the size of them is large for a fly.
9: So they've always been pollinating here in Tasmania, and now we're looking at at sort of getting them to help us officially.
14: Yeah, so yes they are always here in the environment um, and now we're just managing them um, commercially so that we can actually put them on a particular site to do the pollination.
9: So how have you been doing the research? You've started by trapping flies
1: or...?
14: (laughs) Yeah, so we had to determine um, a source of flies uh, and then bring that uh, colony into our rearing facilities and look at many different ways of how to rear them, um, on what they like to feed, Um, and various other, like where they like to lay their eggs and things like that. So somewhere uh, around here and at your facilities, you're rearing them? We certainly are. So we've got two industry partners, both Bejo and SPS, that are rearing flies, um, as well as our research colony back down in Margate. Is there much interest in this project? Um, Yeah, there's quite a few growers that have reached out, um, showing interest in trialling flies in their system to see how well they work. Mm -hmm. So we've got quite a few different growers that we're working with at the moment.
9: And what about overseas in terms of research? Are researchers interested? Are they doing other types of species? Is there sort of
14: similar programs? Um, Yeah, so there are other flies that are being researched um, both in Australia and and in the Netherlands. And even even here we've got another species that we've got in mind that we want to do that's um, more adapted to warmer climates. So this is a bit of a game changer for, for the pollination industry. Yeah, um, it, it's essentially going to provide another managed pollinator that can be used um, in conjunction with bees. Good timing. Yeah, very good timing, given that varroa mite's here and we've got other concerns around bee colonies.
1: Dr Rayleigh Robottom researching the use of hoverflies to pollinate crops. Plenty of Queensland has been taking advantage of flies for a long time. And unlike bees, the hoverflies don't go back to a hive, so they're not at risk to the varroa mite, thanks to Fiona Breen for that story.
0: On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour.
1: Now, before I take you off to Toowoomba, where Trevor Hess has the quotes, if you've been watching the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator continue its slide across Australia, it might be heartening, maybe not, to know there's a different story in the United States. Cattle prices there have hit record highs this month and are expected to climb even further when the U.S. emerges from drought and starts to rebuild its herd. The average price for a heavy steer in America is nearly $4 a kilogram more than what Australian cattle producers are getting, and the price gap between the two nations has never been higher. Wade Garrett runs cattle in the U.S. state of Utah and says going forward the price and the weather forecast is looking good
15: so cattle prices are higher than they have been probably ever at this point now really nice to see because there's been some tough years um so we like seeing it but we would prefer seeing even prices more often instead of the uh, yo-yo effect but of course um with cost of feed going up and fuel and energy we had to have higher prices or we'd been out of business so
16: yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, what have uh, what have been some of the reasons why the prices are so high at the moment?
15: So a lot of it has to do with uh, cattle inventories and people eating more um, beef which is a great thing but we had severe drought across the country, um, not just in Utah for the last several years so people have been selling their heifers plus they were trying to make ends meet uh, so they were selling more of the heifer cattle. Um, our cattle numbers have gotten low for the mother cattle. And um, now we also had an awful winter in this area and in the Intermountain West. A lot of people lost baby calves last winter. So our inventories are
16: low and um, supply and demand, when inventories are low, prices will go high. As a producer, when you look at these prices, uh, what are you seeing right now?
15: You're paying three dollars a pound for some uh, calves that are 500 pound calves which they were a dollar 50 to 60 a year ago so almost double in some instances um those prices have you know really climbed especially the last six months and so that is putting
16: a lot of money back into the producer's pocket and that has been very helpful to help them stay afloat and to those back home tuning into the country, our $3 a pound is roughly 5 to $6 a kilo if you're doing the maths in your head very poorly. So tell me, what are you looking into the future now with prices like this? What's that going to mean for your operation?
15: So it's a good thing for our operation
16: and other operations. Uh, people tend to keep more
15: heifers now. So for a little longer, the calf inventory will stay low. Um, the cattle cycle is typically about what they call a 10-year cycle. So it'll go high and then it'll dip down and go back up. And we're probably getting up towards the top of that cycle where people start keeping more heifers, more replacement animals. Um, and once they start doing that in about two years, we'll start getting more calves. But for the next couple of years, prices look very good if the economy stays good and things stay good. And, and that's going to help
16: producers stay in business. That little bit of extra cash in your pocket, um, on a ground level, what's that going to look like for your property?
15: So it helps tremendously. I mean, there's been some tough years, uh, high feed prices, um, having to cut back on inventories. So uh, some producers it's helping just catch back up. Um, others are going to be able to make good investments into their properties, um, into their businesses,
16: and able to um, you know keep going forward to feed this country. Now we're getting towards the end of the summer here. What are you looking to? Uh, what do you want this winter to be like?
15: Uh, another good winter, maybe not quite as much snow as last winter uh, if, I, if I wanted it perfect, but uh, another good winter. You know, we, we need some good winters to get caught back up um, here in this area for all of the state, but especially here on the Wasatch Front with all the growth and everything else and all the competing interests. We need some more good winners.
1: Those winners are critical to the moisture that gets stored for those pastures. That's Wade Garrett, a US cattle producer, speaking to freelance reporter Hugo Ricard-Bell. We're off to Toowoomba now, where Trevor Hess has the quotes.
17: Good afternoon. The number of cattle penned at Toomba today increased by 172 head to 417. Included in the lineup were 57 head of mainly steers sold open auction and 31 cows and calves. A fair panel of buyers was present and operating in a generally cheaper market. Lightweight yielding steers returning to paddock experienced very little change in price, to average 219 sales to 242. Medium weight yielding steers to feed made to 222, average 215. Small selection of heavyweight yielding steers to feed made to an average 224. Lightweight yielding heifers returning to paddock made to 148, to average 130. Processor classes averaged 110, made to 128. Poor quality lines at 77 cents plain condition medium-weight cows made to 92 cents to average 84. Heavyweight three-scores average 152. Best of the heavyweight cows made to 178 to average 171. Friesian steers sold open auction made to $290 a head. Cows and calves made to $1,390 a unit. And there'll be no sale in Tormor next Monday due to the public holiday. This has been Trevor Hess from MLA National Livestock Reporting Service.
1: No sale, but there will be a Queensland Country Hour, just like there'll be another one at midday tomorrow. And remember, you can get all your rural news online at any time, abc.net.au slash rural, and tune in from a quarter past six tomorrow for your rural report. My name is Callie Buchanan. Thank you so much for your company this afternoon. Stay tuned now for the latest in ABC News. It's one o'clock.